Thank you guys. Merry Christmas to everybody. Great to be with you today. Thanks for being a part of our services. We are in a series looking at uh, the Christmas story, particularly Matthew chapter 2, the visit of the Magi um, and Herod the Great and the massacre of the innocents and all that sort of stuff that takes place there. I want to begin today with just a little bit of review or some recap. Again, Matthew chapter 2 begins with the story of the wise men showing up um, at the capital city of Judea, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, And the wise men go in and they inquire of the king of this area. And they ask him, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we've been following his star in the east, or that has risen in the east, and we have come to worship him. Uh, Remember, they are talking to the current king of uh, Israel, of the area of Judea, Herod the Great. And so they're announcing to him that there is a competitor that has arrived in his kingdom. And so Herod immediately processes this as a threat. So what does Herod do? Well, he decides uh, rather than um, send gifts to this new king, he decides that he's going to hatch a little plan to try and knock this potential competitor um, out. And so he keeps his game face on when he's talking to the wise men. He tells him, hey, gang, I tell you where you're going to be able to find this, uh, this king. He's going to be in a little town south, about six miles southwest of here, the town of Bethlehem. That's where the Christ child is supposed to be born. And uh, I'm sharing this with you under one stipulation. My stipulation is that when you find him, you come back to me, you report back to me and tell me where he is so that I may say, he says in verse 12, uh, worship him as well. Well, Herod has no intention of worshiping this Christ child. In fact, again, Herod's intention is to try and knock this Christ child out. He wants to kill the competition. So the wise men, they head out. The star that they were following reappears, and it leads them directly to the very house where the Lord Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are at. And so they bring their gifts to the Lord Jesus. They stay. They worship him. And then they get a dream, and they get wise to what Herod's been doing here. And the dream informs them, hey, look, y'all need to slip on out of town because Herod's going to do some bad stuff here. And so they slip on out of town. Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, also has a dream that Herod is up to no good and that he's supposed to take his young family and flee down into Egypt outside of Herod's territory, outside of Herod's reach. And so Herod realizes that he's been bamboozled by these wise men because they don't report back. So what does Herod do? He decides to send soldiers to Bethlehem, not to knock on the doors of all the homes looking for that one child. No, instead he sends soldiers to the doors looking for any male baby two years of age or younger, and he has those infants slaughtered. This is what is referred to in church history as the massacre of the innocents. Meanwhile, Mary and Joseph are in transit to Egypt, safe from the reach of Herod. They set up shop in Egypt, and baby Jesus takes his first steps in Egyptian sand. Now, this is where we want to pick up the story today with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus down in Egypt land. Our text comes from Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. We'll be reading verses 19 through 23. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 19, Mary and Joseph in Egypt. Here we go. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And then he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You may be seated. All right, so we see in these verses that Joseph has not one more, but two more dreams. A couple of dreams have been taking place here in this chapter. Uh, The first dream informs Joseph, verse 20, that he can take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. In other words, Herod the Great is no more. We looked at some of that last week. The second dream in verse 22 warns Joseph not to settle in the area around Bethlehem. He's got a bad feeling about Herod's son Archelaus. And sure enough, Archelaus turns out to be a ruthless, brutal dictator. In fact, the Romans had to depose Archelaus in the year 6 AD because he was so violent, because he was such a terrible leader. The Romans had to get rid of him. And Joseph, knowing the reputation that Archelaus has already established for himself in the few short months of the first year of his reign, I don't want to go anywhere near where that guy's in charge. And so Joseph has a bad feeling. He has a dream. The dream in the dream he's instructed, hey, look, just bypass Bethlehem. Don't go back there. In fact, go back to Nazareth where you and Mary are from, and you can settle there in the district of Galilee. Now, I want to take a time out here, and I want to point out some similarities between the story of Jesus that we just read, his birth narrative, and the story of Moses. You're like, Jesus and Moses out of this? Yes. So let's take a look at it. Moses was the great Hebrew leader, right? So we're going back 1,200, 1,300 years before the time of Christ. Uh, to the Moses, he was the great leader of the Hebrews. He was, uh, led them out of bondage and of slavery in Egypt. But if you recall, at the birth of Moses, as well as at the birth of the Lord Jesus, there is a slaughter of the, in- of the infants. Um, there were those who wanted to kill Moses. Pharaoh saw that the Israelites were having too many babies. He decided that he wanted to initiate some sort of population control. And so he decides that he's going to kill all the male babies of, of amongst the Israelites. He says, Exodus chapter 1 and verse 21, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, Pharaoh said, you shall cast into the Nile. That is, I just drown those children, kill those children, but, uh, but you shall let every daughter live. So Moses ends up escaping this edict from Pharaoh because his mom sends Moses' sister uh, with a little reed basket that they fashion, and they put little baby Moses in the reed basket, float him down the Nile River, past Pharaoh's daughter who sees the basket, and she sees the little baby in the basket, doesn't know where he's from, but she sees this little baby, recognizes him as a gift from the gods, and she adopts him on the spot. So the life of Moses is rescued while all the other babies are destroyed. Sounds an awful lot like Matthew chapter 2. Another point of similarity between Jesus and Moses is the location of both Moses and Jesus. Moses leads the Israelites up out of the land of Egypt, right, to the promised land. They're coming out of Egypt to get to the promised land. Just the same, Jesus is called up out of the land of Egypt to deliver God's people, this time not from bondage, but to come and deliver them from their sins. It is for this reason that Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea earlier in chapter 2, where he says in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt, I called my son. So Hosea, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is instructed to say, hey, you know what? The Messiah, 
is going to come out of Egypt, just like Moses did. So Matthew uh, connects some of the dots here. He does not see, I'm sorry, he does not see the fact that Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt as mere coincidence. Rather, he believes this is the almighty hand of a sovereign God of the universe who's in control of the events of history, guiding and directing the birth and the life of the Messiah. Sure, Mary and Joseph could have fled north to Syria, and they would have been safe from the reach of Herod there. They could have fled south all the way down to Ethiopia if they really wanted to get away. Or they could have fled to the east to ancient Babylon and been safe amongst the Jewish population that was there. But again, that was not in God's plan. God's plan was to fulfill what the prophet Hosea was instructed to prophesy, that, that they were to come out of the land of Egypt. So God sent them down to Egypt to fulfill this prophecy. Matthew also sees alignment between the massacre of the innocents in Jesus' day and the massacre of the innocents in Moses' day. Basically, when Matthew sits down to write his gospel, he is reflecting on the events of Jesus' life against the backdrop of the Old Testament. This past week, uh, we actually met Wednesday. Our Bible study group usually meets on Thursday mornings at Strickland's. All are welcome to come, 645, great group of guys. And so I shared with them, you know what, it's kind of like thinking about the, if the Old Testament is this hand and the New Testament is this hand and you hold up Jesus against the backdrop of the Old Testament and you, and you start looking at it, suddenly those two things align. They look exactly the same. The one mirrors the other. It's almost as though those events of the Old Testament were speaking into uh, the life of the Lord Jesus. And so that's what Matthew is seeing here. Um, basically, when Matthew sits down to write his gospel, he's reflecting on the events of Jesus' life against the backdrop of the Old Testament and asking the question, do any of these events bear an uncanny likeness to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And where there is similarity, Matthew begins to point those things out. Um, Matthew is telling his first century Jewish audience. By the way, Matthew is writing not to Gentiles, that's us. Matthew is writing to Jewish people who have either put their faith and trust in Jesus or who are thinking about putting their faith and trust in Jesus. He wants to confirm to those that have that, hey, look, we found the Messiah. He wants to convince those that have not, hey, he really is Messiah. Put your faith and trust there. Uh, you know, there are predictions in the Old Testament about Messiah. For example, where the Messiah would be born. Matthew points one of those out in chapter 2, and I think it's like verse 5, where he says, hey, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And he's quoting there from Isaiah. Everybody in Jesus' day knew this. Everybody knew that the Messiah was going to come out of Bethlehem. Predictions like which family tree the Messiah would come from. He was going to come from the bloodline of David. There are specific predictions, like that the Messiah would uh, perform miracles. One of the miracles being that he was going to heal a man born blind. Everybody knew to look for that. Sure, of course we, he's going to do those things. And so Jesus fulfilled all of those specific predictions perfectly. But in addition to the specific predictions, when you hold up Jesus against the backdrop of the Old Testament suddenly all of those Old Testament pages come alive with the life and ministry of Jesus. This treatment of Old Testament texts, of finding Messiah in the stories of the Old Testament, is what Bible scholars today refer to as typology. 
Uh, I got a definition of this for you here. This is my definition. um, Typology is an interpretive method, a way of looking at the Old and New Testament texts, looking for points of similarity between the two, such that the degree of similarity is so great as to afford the Old Testament stories the weight of predictive prophecy. In other words, even though the massacre of the innocents in Egypt, right, our Old Testament story, even though the massacre of the innocents, nobody thought that that story was going to be fulfilled in the life of the Messiah. But when we look at the events of Jesus' life, hold those up against those Old Testament events, oh my, suddenly those Old Testament events are confirming Jesus' identity as Messiah. He fulfills them, every one. What I'd like to do is to give you several other examples of this form of biblical interpretation. For instance, here in the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1 starting at verse 22, Matthew is making a correlation between what Isaiah says and during his years of prophecy, during his years of ministry, about this gal that's going to have a, a, a baby via a virgin birth. Matthew writes, All this took place, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now that last verse is a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 and verse 14. Let me give you the context of Isaiah's day. Isaiah is standing outside the city walls of, everybody, everybody with me? I threw that typology thing at y'all a minute ago. I know that was kind of heavy. Hang with me. Uh, So there's a direct quote from Isaiah 7 and 14, where Isaiah is standing outside the city walls of Jerusalem. The city is under siege. King Ahaz is thinking about signing some documents of surrender because of the army that's gathered outside of the city of Jerusalem. And he thinks to himself, you know, and Isaiah shows up outside the city walls, and he's hollering up and having a conversation with Ahaz saying, don't sign the documents. Don't surrender to these people. God is going to deliver you from these people. And to prove that God is going to do this for you, there's going to be a sign given to you. A virgin will give birth to a child. Uh, Now, there really was a virgin in Isaiah's day. And that virgin really did give birth to a child. At the time that Isaiah said this, and at the time that this happened, Isaiah did not have a clue that what he was standing outside the city walls of Jerusalem shouting up at Ahaz was going to be fulfilled in the life of the Messiah, in the life of the Lord Jesus. Um, He had no idea that that event would be repeated in the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. In other words, Isaiah had no idea that what he was saying to Ahaz was pointing toward Messiah. But for Matthew, in hindsight, right, because hindsight's 20-20, And Matthew, he sees those Old Testament stories, and he looks at the life of Jesus, holds one up against the other, and he says, Aha! Wow! These Old Testament stories are actually not just stories in and of themselves, but they point to the life of Jesus toward the Messiah. They confirm him as Messiah. The parallels were just too striking for Matthew and the other New Testament writers to ignore. In other words, he saw typology, confirmation that Jesus was Messiah, taken from similarities between the life of Jesus and events in Israel's history. I'll give you another one. Genesis chapter 22 tells the story of Father Abraham being sent by God to a certain place, a certain mountain called Moriah. 
He sends him there to sacrifice Abraham's one and only son, uh, Isaac. Abraham ties his son Isaac to the altar when they get there. He raises up a knife, but God intervenes and sends a substitute sacrifice to take Isaac's place. Fast forward 2,000 years to Jesus on the cross. John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, remembering Genesis 22, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son. Hmm. Sounds awfully familiar to that Genesis 22 passage, Jesus lining up perfectly with the account of the Old Testament. Just like Isaac was tied to the altar, Jesus was nailed to the altar of the cross. Just like the ram had its head caught in the horns, uh, that the sacrificial animal had its head caught in the caught in the thorns. Sorry, its horns caught in the thorns. Uh, Jesus had that cap of thorns pressed down on his head. And finally, just like the ram was provided as a substitute for Isaac, Jesus died as our sin substitute. You see, typology holds up the life of Jesus against the backdrop of the Old Testament, and those points of similarity are just too striking such that they begin, those Old Testament stories of themselves, begin to take on the full weight of predictive prophecy. He holds those Old Testament stories akin to them saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Right? He sees them the same way. Another example, consider the Jewish tabernacle. God gave Moses specific, and I do mean specific. Read through the whole second half of the book of Exodus. is about the specific instructions of how to construct that tabernacle. Um, I've got a picture of the tabernacle for you here. The tabernacle was the covered tent surrounded by those walls of curtains. God resided inside of the tabernacle, inside of the covered part of that uh, area, uh, in, the back, in a back room called the Holy of Holies. That's where God would be. Those walls of curtains formed the outer court around the tabernacle. If you wanted to make your sacrifices to God, the outer court is where you'd go. You'd take your animal, you'd place it on the brazen altar. It's got fire on it there. You can see the brazen altar, brazen meaning brass. It was shined up like a tuba. And so they would take their animals there, and they would sacrifice their animals there. And if you want to get to the Holy of Holies where God is, this is the first step you got to take. you got to bring your sacrificial animal. you got to come by way of blood. The second step that you take is you go to that little, I don't know if you can see it, there's maybe a little guy in the way, but there's a brazen lava, which uh, brazen again meaning brass, and the lava being what holds water. It kind of looks like an hourglass shaped big giant bowl. And so they would come and they would, the priests would cleanse themselves ritually before they go into the tabernacle to meet with God. Again, so if you want to come to where God is, you've got to come by way of blood, and then you've got to come by way of water. And then if you want to get back into the tabernacle where God is, you want to get back into the Holy of Holies where it is, well, you can't go there. The only person that's allowed to go there is the high priest. So somebody has to go on your behalf. Somebody has to go and speak to God on your behalf. Uh, and the writer of Hebrews picks up on this typology when he says, hey, you know what? Jesus fulfilled all of that. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, but when Christ appeared as our high priest, he went into the greater and more perfect tabernacle uh, or the tent in heaven, the one that's not here on earth that's been made with human hands. He went up to the one in heaven, verse 12, Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places and not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. The writer of Hebrews is trying to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of of all that Old Testament stuff, of all that of the Old Testament sacrificial system. John 14 and verse 6 uh, reports, Jesus said, No one gets to the Father but through me. 
There's only one way to get to God in that tabernacle system. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm that way. I perfectly fulfill the way by blood, the way by water. I'm the high priest. I'll take you to God. Now, were there any of the Jewish people thinking that the sacrificial system that had been in place now for 1,200, 1,300 some odd years at the time of Christ, was that somehow fulfilled by Messiah? Of course they weren't looking for that. But when you hold up Jesus, right, against the backdrop of the Old Testament, suddenly all of those Old Testament stories come alive. The pages of Scripture come alive with Jesus as Messiah. Suddenly we see how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of not just predictive prophecy, but also of the Hebrew religion and Hebrew history itself. Jesus perfectly fulfills all of it. One more, because I'm on a roll. When Israel was in bondage living in Egypt, God sent ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt to bring their, break their grip on the Hebrew people. The tenth and final plague would be, coming, would be the coming of the death angel. The death angel was going to swoop in and cover over the whole land of Egypt, pass through the whole land of Egypt, and all the firstborn of Egypt would die. To protect God's people from this plague, the Jewish people were to go outside of their homes, take the life of a lamb, uh, its blood would pour out, they'd put... Uh, put blood over the doorposts of their homes, and then go inside the house and roast that lamb and have the Passover meal. When the death angel saw the blood on the doorpost of the Hebrew home, the death angel would then pass over those homes and leave them unharmed. This event would be celebrated in perpetuity, and it was called, you're listening. Fast forward 1,200 years to the time of Christ, and Jesus is hoisted up on the cross. And guess what day he's hoisted up on the cross? On Passover, that's right. It's the day when the Israelites are to take their lambs now to the temple. They stop taking them to their homes, outside their homes. They start sacrificing these lambs at the temple itself. And so they go to sacrifice their lambs. And in fact, what we learn is that Jesus was actually died on the cross at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the same moment that the first of those Passover lambs were sacrificed at the temple. The Bible records that, that Jesus died as our Passover lamb. Again, were any of the rabbis of Jesus' day looking at the story of Passover and thinking the Messiah was going to fulfill that? No, they weren't thinking of that at all. But when we hold Jesus up against the Old Testament story, then suddenly the pages of the Old Testament come alive with Jesus as Messiah. It's like the light bulbs started to go off for Matthew and for the other New Testament writers when they started looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the Lord Jesus' life. Suddenly we realize that there's much more to the Old Testament, that it's talking about Jesus, that it's pointing to Jesus, that it's confirming his identity as Messiah. It's almost like God gave all those stories so that when Jesus would show up, even in the aftermath of, him, of his leaving, people would it'd be like, you know, Big blinking lights in Vegas, right? Ding, 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 ding. You found it. This is where you want to be. This is what you want to see. God was using those stories to confirm that Jesus was Messiah. All right. I think, amen? Good stuff. All right. I think you get the point. Let's stop there and ask our most important question of the day. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, you're working hard up there today. I can really tell. Uh, sounds like you had a lot of reading this week. Uh, but I got to tell you, I don't see how this could possibly have anything to do with uh, my everyday life. I'm not planning on being a seminary professor or sitting in your biblical interpretation class. So what difference does any of this make to me? Well, let's, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. 
Um, I was reading a sermon recently, and the pastor was preaching about the tabernacle. Uh, he got off onto this tangent about tent pegs, the tent pegs that were used to secure uh, the tabernacle. In fact, I believe it's in Exodus chapter 27. Maybe I mentioned that a little bit later. But Exodus chapter 27, where the tent pegs are mentioned. Um, and so uh, he was trying to make, draw a spiritual lesson from the tent pegs that were used to secure the tabernacle. Here's what he said, and I quote, uh, The pins were buried in the ground, and they also emerged from the ground, and it speaks of the death and the resurrection, that which is buried and that which is above the ground. The part of the pins beneath the ground become a symbol of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the part above the ground suggests his resurrection, end of quote. Now, when I read through Exodus chapter 27, I was like, I think he, Moses just didn't want the tent blown across the desert. I mean, that, that's, I, in my humble opinion, okay, that's just kind of how I saw that. But this sermon snippet, in my, uh, again, humble opinion, is what I would identify as a mishandling of the Word of God. It would be easy for us to want to go hunting through the pages of the Old Testament and to want to spiritualize everything that we see here and act like, oh, Jesus has got to be in that verse, and he's got to be in that verse, and he's got to be in that verse, and trying to find Jesus in every story, in every page, in every detail, even things like tent pegs. So we have to be careful with this. We don't want to become wild in our application of typology. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, he's talking to young Timothy, the young preacher, and he says to them, hey, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And you can shame yourself, Timothy, if you don't rightly handle the word of truth. So we need to be careful with this type of biblical interpretation, careful that we don't over-spiritualize texts that are never intended to be spiritualized. Uh, here's my rule of thumb. The New Testament writers were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew's writing under, I mean, God's directing Matthew's thought. God's directing what Matthew writes, which means Matthew, when he sees typology, I'm going to see typology. When Matthew sees stuff from the Old Testament as predicting stuff that happens in the life of Jesus and aligning with that, then I'm going to see predictive prophecy in those events. But I'm going to limit myself to what the New Testament writers identify. I'm, in other words, I'll go no further with trying to find Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures than where the New Testament writers point him out. So that's the first difference that this makes to your life and to mine, is to make sure that we don't over-spiritualize the Bible and that we allow the New Testament writers to be our guide. Thus, we make sure or ensure that we are correctly handling the word of truth. With me? Fair enough? All right. We have a saying around Christian churches Hebron's a part of the Christian church movement. We have a saying around Christian churches that goes like this. Where the Bible speaks, we will speak. Where the Bible is silent, we will be silent. I think that's a great rule of thumb when it comes to how to handle these kinds of texts. All right, number two, and this is my only other point of the day. What difference does all this make to your life and mine? Well, these typologies are designed by Matthew. I mean, they were intended by Matthew and by the Holy Spirit who's guiding and directing him to confirm to us, you and me, uh, that Jesus is indeed Messiah. 
You know, there are over a hundred typologies identified by the New Testament writers. Plus, you take all the predictive prophecies, like where Jesus was going to be born, like where the Messiah is going to come from the bloodline of David, like the Messiah, and the, man, man, the miracle of the man heal, healing a man born blind. If you were to take just 30 of those predictive prophecies and some of the typologies, bundle them all up together, amass those together, just 30 of those, some of the most widely recognized passages that are clearly talking about Messiah, if you were to take just 30 of those and put the math to it, and calculate the odds that one person in human history, get this, could possibly fulfill just 30. I mean, there's over 100, but could just, just fulfill 30 of those in that person's life. The probability would be 1 times 10 with 100 zeros after it. I don't know what that number is. It's bigger than the national deficit, okay? Uh, it's, and, I mean, that's a big Number. There's somebody out there's probably got a name for it, but one times ten with a hundred zeros after it, that is basically in math world mathematical certainty. Okay? How do we know that Jesus really is Messiah? How do we know that Christianity really is true and that all the other religions of the world are wrong? Well, it's because Christianity has one times ten with a hundred zeros behind it. And friends, that's that's mathematical certainty. And that's what Matthew's trying to help his first century audience to see. It's, though, it's as though Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said in Matthew 5 and verse 17, Hey gang, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I came to fulfill all this stuff. What difference does that make to your life and to mine? Listen, friends, this world system would love to shake your faith in Christ. It would love to tell you that this stuff you believe in and that you're showing up at church at Christmas time and talking about Jesus and maybe, ah, that stuff never happened. That's what the world system would love for you to think. They want, misery loves company. I mean, those people are miserable. Some of you are sitting in college classes where you've got a silver-tongued professor, a smart aleck professor, who is trying to convince you with high-sounding words and fancy rhetoric that the stuff that you believe in is not true. Their aim is to help you become enlightened and miserable like they are. Some of us have friends who every time we get together with them and Jesus' name is mentioned or something about the church is mentioned, they launch into a diatribe about how none of that stuff that y'all believe in, none of that stuff is true or real. These critics, friends, may come up with all kinds of high-sounding logic and convincing rhetoric, but listen, until those folks can explain away 1 times 10 with 100 zeros behind it, I'm going to stick with Jesus, right? I'm going to stick with the Word of God. I feel like I got a lot more uh, weight in, in that, in those numbers, than they've got in their opinion. What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Uh, well, we need to make sure that we are building our house upon the Word of truth. Telling our children these stories so that when they get older and they hear the stories of Jesus, they themselves can go, have those aha moments, just like Matthew had those aha moments. And that stuff can jump off the pages of Scripture at them. Listen, friends, with 10 and 100 zeros behind it, you will never regret putting your confidence, your faith, your trust for eternity in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. 
Most gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for guys like Matthew who brilliantly looked at the Old Testament scriptures, guided by your Holy Spirit, and were able to deduce all these points of similarity, all these connections, God. Lord, you knew all the way along as you were living your life here on this earth that they were there. They were going to be there for us to find. Thank you, Lord, for again leaving crumbs on the trail, for leaving little hidden treasures for us to discover that you knew, Lord, one day would help encourage us in our faith, would help shore us up when doubt tends to creep in. Jesus, this morning, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our minds, that we would be all the more convinced that we have found the truth. Lord, we know what we've experienced from you personally, but it is confirmed in predictive prophecy. Thank you for that, Lord. God, we just pray that you would work and stir in our hearts during this time of communion. We give you this space. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.